This is The Narrative. I'm Harry Swartout. This week's show will be an interview with producer-director Mike Tolan, who's known for his sports documentaries and film. And stick around to the end of the episode, where I'll be playing a sneak peek of a special narrative episode coming out at the end of September. Let's get into it. I'm here with Peabody-winning producer-director Mike Tolan. Mike has tons of credits to his name, from sports documentaries like Hank Aaron, Chasing the Dream, and the 30 for 30 episode Small Potatoes, Who Killed the USFL, to motion pictures like Radio and Coach Carter, and even some classic millennial children's TV, with all that and Keenan and Kel. Mike's work runs the gamut of subject and medium, but he seems to keep coming back to stories driven by sport. Mike, welcome to The Narrative. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. So, your newest project is a documentary on the Morningside Five. It's actually the third uh, documentary on them. You followed this high school basketball team that you covered 25 years ago as they looked to defend their California state title. And since then, you've covered all manner of sports and worked with big stars. So why come back and revisit these five men 25 years later? Well, it was originally called Hardwood Dreams, and it was the first project I did in L.A. after I moved there in the early 90s and joined up with Brian Robbins to form Tolan Robbins Productions. It, it was kind of the calling card for us. It was what uh, helped us decide that we liked working together and wanted to become partners. Um, we were able to, to get this film sold to Fox and got Wesley Snipes to narrate it and got into the Sundance Film Festival. And it was the thing that sort of opened the doors for us. So there was an uh, enormous emotional connection uh, and, and sense of gratitude for what this film did. Um, the five kids who, as you mentioned, had won a state title as juniors all came back for their senior year. And we essentially matriculated with them at Morningside High, which is in Inglewood, California, pretty much every day for six months or so. Um, and so we were connected to the kids and we followed them as they went to college and so forth. And, and, and I guess on a certain level, uh, I was mindful of the success of a film called Seven Up that a British director named Michael Apted had done in which he, 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 he found a group of seven-year-olds in England with the notion that, uh, show me the kid at seven and I'll show you the man. And he went back every seven years, revisited the kids and see how their lives were, were changing and how their, uh, how their dreams were shaping up and how they were, um, you know, either the same kids he met at seven or, 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 or changing in terms of attitude and personality and perspective on the world. And when he got to 28, which was the fourth installment of the film, it was released as a feature film in the U.S. It's called Seven Up, 28 Up. Um, I thought it was groundbreaking. I thought it was a, uh, an amazing look at humanity. Um, and I felt like there was an opportunity here with these kids to, to take a different slice of uh, of a uh, of an American inner city community, and see how these dreams, which were all based around professional basketball aspirations, had either come true or changed or had uh, been dashed. And so it was uh, an opportunity to to revisit them. It was a personal catharsis for for Brian and me. Ten years later, we did another film with these guys. Again, went through the film festival circuit sold it to Spike TV at that point. And then all of a sudden it was, it was 20 years. And I realized that these kids were now the age that I was when we first started together in the early nineties. Um, and I said, let's, you know, let's go for round three. So after a quarter century, things have changed a lot, you know, both technologically as far as making the film is concerned. 
and also for basketball and how it's played, and also culturally. So how was this time different than 1992? The, the, the first film we did, Hardwood Dreams, uh, was shot during the 92-93 school year, and uh, three of the five starters on the Morningside High team had gotten full rides to Division One schools. There was uh, high hopes, uh, and the dreams were all in front of them, and they were all going to be the next, you know, Michael Jordan. Uh, and uh, obviously, reality sets in, and um, <laughs> life takes interesting turns. By uh, 2013, when we began filming this uh, most most recent chapter in their lives, they'd all gone on to find careers. Four of the five have families. Uh, three of the five have college degrees. Two of the five have advanced degrees. You know, it's 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 really what the film is about is seeing how their lives went in directions that nobody would have ever predicted. Um, it's fascinating, sometimes heartbreaking, sometimes heroic. It's real life. Um, there's there's bumps and bruises along the way, but I think there's enormous sense of triumph and success in overcoming obstacles, which at the end of the day I find very heartening. In terms of filming, um, you know, it's it's really about storytelling. Um, these are hard films to make because you have to get the trust of the subjects. You have to earn uh, their willingness to basically uh, welcome you into their lives. Um, and that's some, that's all encompassing. Uh, you know, this is back in the early days, you know, we were in the classrooms, we were at practices, you know, we'd go out with them sometimes um, in, in non-basketball environments. Um, and it was just, you know, we were part of the landscape. And the more you invest the time and the more you get the trust, in most cases, the better material there is. The more more authentic it is, the more unaffected it is by the, the camera's presence. Um, back in the day, Brian Robbins and I, um, to get to the, the question of the technical aspects and the filmmaking, you know, we bought two little Canon video cameras, which had a, um, it had a setting on it that allowed you to make the video look more like film. Um, but these are, you know, consumer cameras. And when you watch the film, even on, even on TV, you can see the inferior picture quality. Um, it's a little tough for me to, I cringe a little bit, but it makes it authentic. You know, you know, it's real, you know, it's not, you know, it's not set up or, or redone. Um, 25 years later, uh, we're still using small cameras that are largely uh, sold for consumers, but they're high-def quality. They're, they're movie quality. You can project them on a large screen, and, um, and everybody's going to say, you know, it looks like a movie. Um, they're about the same size. They're not much more expensive. Um, it's just huge advancements. Um, we were talking last night with a, with a good friend of mine and a spectacular documentary filmmaker, John Hawk, and, and we were saying, uh, it's, technically it's not that different. Um, it's just you still have to know kind of where to point the camera and, and where the story is emerging and, and, how, to, and how to follow it. So it's a lot about the, inter, the interpersonal, um, the interaction. Um, you know, for these guys to welcome me back into their lives 10 years later when their lives were largely unformed, and then to welcome me back in 10 years later again, um, when they have families, when they have kids, when they have responsibilities, when they're busy. Um, one of them, Stace Bozeman, has moved to Minnesota. The other four still live in Los Angeles. I mean, that's a, that's a um, 
tremendous show of, of faith and uh, and confidence in the integrity of our efforts to to tell the truth. When Hardware Dreams came out, the original documentary came out at the same time as Hoop Dreams. But the interesting thing I think about that is that they're both really interested in basketball during this very specific time. What about basketball was so compelling in the early 90s? Well, I think it was becoming apparent that basketball was the most attractive sport to African-American athletes in urban areas in America. And it was, you know, quote, the ticket out, the chance to get a a free college education. Um, You know, I'm a baseball guy, really, first and foremost. And it used to be when I was a kid that um, it was the golden age Major League Baseball, where African Americans were starting to dominate the game. You know, starting with Jackie Robinson kicking open the door in '47, um, and then Campy and Larry Doby and Don Newcomb. In basketball, obviously, the NBA rosters are dominated by African Americans. Anyhow, so Morningside High was a school that had been primarily uh, white in the '60s and '70s, and by the time we got there, it was primarily black. I think the heroes of these kids were the basketball players. You know, the NBA's done an amazing job of elevating its players. They're 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 kind of in, in, in entertainment terms, they're kind of the names above the title. You know, you don't really go see the Cavs. You go to see LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, and and Kevin Love. So um, I think those are the posters on the wall. Um, those are the guys these these guys emulated. Um, that was the ticket out. And so, you know, what we did was we found a school that had uh, created a profile for itself in the community and beyond through its academic excellence. Um, but at the same time, the academics were lagging. And these kids, um, you know, they were getting help to get through school. And they they had a, uh, I think there's a sense of entitlement that, that develops among young athletes. And we wanted to see that, you know, sort of sociological implications really of, of the overemphasis on sports and, 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 and academics being, you know, put in a secondary role. It's interesting when I think about the continuum of the work Brian and I did and how um, not that much later we found the story of Coach Carter about uh, a real-life coach in Richmond, California, um, uh, outside of Oakland, who had an undefeated team that was steaming toward a California State, what seemed like a, a high school basketball championship. But he became aware that they were underachieving in the classroom and some of them were in danger of flunking out. And he put a padlock on the on the gym door one Monday morning and said, um, let's meet in the library and, and told them until their grades got up to an acceptable level, they'd be spending the two hours in the library studying and doing homework instead of practicing basketball. So, uh, and, and instead of applauding him and supporting him and lauding him for his perspective, the community was outraged. How can, how can you stop these guys on their way to such athletic glory? And it's a really interesting case of, you know, you know, what are our priorities and what matters? So, um, you know, it, it, w- it was fascinating to follow these kids um, in a community where um, Byron Scott and Eldon Campbell had gone to the same high school and made their way into the NBA. Um, Paul Pierce was growing, actually it was a little bit later, um, who would come into the NBA from the nearby rival high school. So, they, you know, these guys had every right 
to dream and every right to believe it was possible when they're, you know, they're seeing themselves picked on all state teams in case of space, Bozeman, all American teams, um, and college recruiters are filling their heads with, you know, all these, uh, all these wondrous tales of glory in college and the chance to go to the NBA. There's a, there's a very telling scene in the film, um, when Digger Phelps, who'd been the coach at Notre Dame and at this point in the 90s was a broadcaster for ESPN, came to school and met with the team to kind of offer a reality check. Um, and he starts reciting numbers. There are 5,000 Division One players every year who, 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 like you, think they're going to go right into the NBA. And how many get drafted? 60 out of 5,000. And how many make it? 15? 10? So his point was have a backup, have a plan B, do both. You've made a lot of sports documentaries, and you've also made sports feature films like you mentioned, Coach Carter. How does shooting live sport differ from shooting sports to make them feel live for cinema? Uh, Well, we don't shoot live sports much except in the context of telling these kinds of stories. Um, You know, shooting live sports is a multi-camera, multimedia extravaganza, you know, uh, 20-some cameras now for big games and hidden microphones everywhere, and you only get one shot. There's no setup. There's no retakes. Um, It's a very different thing, you know, being in the truck and live switching and knowing it's now or never. um, It's exciting. I mean, it's a total adrenaline rush. Um, I, I admire it, and sometimes I envy it because when the game's over, you're done. Whereas uh, shooting a film like this, you're never done. Even when you're sleeping, you're thinking about what am I missing um, and what went on when I wasn't shooting. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's consuming. And, and, and there, is no, there is no other way other than investing that time. You can't, you can't make a film like this and say, oh, I'm going to go in and shoot you know, once a week or once a month or, you know, a couple, come, come in a couple of days. It's, I think it's about, you know, the, the, the trust and, and the, uh, and the, the, the closeness and the, and the acceptance that, that you guys are in this with us every step of the way. So, um, as far as shooting the games in the context of making a film like this, um, you know, we're shooting with, with two cameras as opposed to, you know, as I said, 20 some sometimes, um, and we're looking at personalities. We're looking at storylines. We're, we're, yeah, you, you know, the, the the beauty of sports is that there's a scoreboard and there are winners and losers. And it's why I think Brian and I, uh, all you know, chose to kind of make that a focus of our production efforts. It's just accessible to an audience. You kind of know who you're rooting for. You kind of know what's at stake, and you know how it becomes a narrative spine. I think if you look at all of our sports movies and documentaries, it's always about something else, something bigger, but having the games, the season um, gives you, you know, a hook, something to hang on to. Um, so in the case of Hardwood Dreams and now Muay Side 5, the games are important just to get a barometer on how the team is doing. And you see in the early days, um, there's dissension, there's a locker room fight that we capture between two of the starters. And it you know spills over to their performance on the court, and they start losing, and they start looking like they're you know not going to be able to repeat as champions. Um, but we sh- we shoot it um, 
we, we're, we're primarily looking at, as I said, this, the, the bigger notion of storytelling. You know, if a, if a kid who never knew his father um, knows he's playing with his father in the stands and he's about to meet him for the first time, you know, we'll let you know how the game turned out, but that's secondary to capturing the moments when they, you know, when they finally meet for the first time. So it's, it's all about when we do, when we do sports movies, we always say um, the action needs to push forward the stories and the character development, or we shouldn't be showing the action at all. So, you know, you just talked about how important it is to have the story that's outside of the sport. And how do you pick what, which stories to tell when, when there's so many things going on in, in so many different sports that you have interest in? Well, it's, it's a good question. And, uh, I think we just start with no, <laughs> we, uh, we, as you said, um, it's a rich fertile ground for storytelling. And when you have a little bit of a niche, um, you get a lot of incoming, you get access to a lot of stories. Um, you hear amazing tales every day of the week. You, we get great scripts. Um, we get books sent to us, articles, people want to come in and pitch either true stories or, uh, or, or fictional stories. Um, and we just have to be very, very selective and there's no science to it. Um, you know, it's, it's judgment. It's, it's, it's gut. It's seat of the pants. Um, it just, you know, really has to, it has to move me and some of my colleagues. Um, Mandalay sports media is a very independent production company. Um, I'm partners with Peter Goober, who people know used to be primarily known as Hollywood royalty, ran a couple of different studios and has a couple of Oscars on his shelves. Now I think he's primarily known as sports royalty. He is a part owner of the LA Dodgers. He's the, one of the two primary owners of the Golden State Warriors, the lead owner in the new um, LAFC soccer team, building a half a billion dollar arena in LA and a billion dollar the stadium in LA and a, and a, and a billion dollar arena in San Francisco for the Warriors. Um, Peter's great because he gives me perspective. He kind of stays at 30,000 feet and reminds me that I can't, I can't be in the kitchen making every donut all the time. So, uh, you know, we have a, an office in LA an office in New York. Um, as I get a very relatively small staff, low overhead. Um, and we pick very judiciously, very selectively because once you get in, um, you know, these things, as I, as I said earlier, become immersive and consuming and you really, um, and most things don't happen. You know, it's funny. People talk about how in baseball you can fail seven out of 10 times and make the hall of fame in our business. You can fail nine out of 10 times and still make a great living and have a lot of fun telling stories. So, um, most things just don't come to fruition for any number of reasons. Um, a film we just released that's about to be on VOD in August, uh, Chuck, which is the story of the real Rocky, Chuck Webner, who fought Muhammad Ali in the 70s and inspired Sylvester Stallone to write Rocky. Uh, I optioned that in 2003, 2004, and took us 13 years to, to get it made. So um, persistence uh, and passion usually um, wins the day. I think Chuck Webner is an interesting person. I know he also fought uh, Andre the Giant, of all people. They had a wrestler versus a boxer, and that was a big draw. He fought Andre the Giant, and he also fought a bear and didn't win in either. That's like almost <laughs> the same thing, though. Andre the Giant is roughly right. the size of a bear. So you've worked with stars you know, like Cuba Gooding Jr. in radio and Samuel L. Jackson and Coach Carter. 
what goes into picking a person, like an actor, to play a real person? How do you make sure you get it right? Well, you never know if you got it right until it's too late to change it. Uh, you know, somebody once said uh, the really tricky part about directing a movie is that you have 20,000 decisions to make. And only 20 of them really matter, but you have no idea which 20 they are until it's over and then it's way too late. So <laughs> you just have to, uh, you just have to stay so vigilant, so on your toes. Um, you got to look at the big picture and how the chemistry between this actor is going to work with the others in the cast. And you have to stay so micro too, you know, that color blouse is going to clash with the other actor's shirt or that camera angle is going to, you know, not be lit well to give us the proper drama or that line reading is emphasizing the wrong part of the speech and we're not getting the, the message that we want to convey. Um, so you never know. I mean, look, we've been incredibly lucky from John Voigt as the coach in varsity blues to Sam Jackson as coach Carter to Kurt Russell as the dad in Dreamer to Keanu Reeves and Hardball. Um, you know, we had four guys in Wild Hogs, John Travolta, Tim Tim Allen, uh uh Bill Macy and uh and Martin Lawrence, like, you know, like four superstars all sort of l- looking to be part of an ensemble. Um, you know, you're just blessed with four world class actors and that that was actually uh, the most successful film we did at the box office, nothing to do with sports, but just a real sort of fun frolic that um, that people seem to enjoy. So, you know, it's a guessing game, and you just try to use your experience and, and gut and hope you get it right. There's a through line in a, in a lot of your work uh, that's about black athletes and families, and even in your children's television. What What draws you to those stories particularly? I went to see a documentary with my dad when he was still alive about Hank Greenberg, baseball player, hero of my dad. Uh, he was a left-handed pitcher at the time, the maybe the one and only, but certainly the primary Jewish sports hero. My dad cried at the film. He was so moved by it. It brought him back to his childhood. He was so proud. He remembers how Hank Greenberg skipped the World Series because it fell over the Jewish holidays and how that was an inspiration and how... Um, it was a, you know, a real source of pride that his, his, his religion, his faith came first. I had done a Hank Aaron documentary and we started talking about the two Hanks and I realized something in the conversation that, um, the civil rights movement resonated with me more than concerns about anti-Semitism. And my dad was really taken aback, I think, and felt like this was some kind of betrayal. Um, and I said, no, you should feel great about this because growing up, um, as I like to say, on the other side of the tracks from the main line outside of Philadelphia, growing up in a real kind of multi, multi, melting pot, multicultural community, I didn't really feel, honestly, uh, any kind of anti-Semitism. I didn't feel the impact of that. I felt, you know, fully assimilated. I, you know, I, I knew my identity, but it, it, it wasn't something that impacted my daily life. Um, whereas, um, civil rights issues growing up in the sixties in Philadelphia were very, uh, prominent, very 
hard to ignore. We had a fascist mayor named Frank Rizzo. It was a very polarized and, uh, and, 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 and racially charged time. And somehow I gravitated to those issues. And when Richie Allen, as I mentioned earlier, became the rookie of the year and the superstar of the Phillies, and I saw the abuse that he was getting, and I just sort of took to him and related to him and, and kind of rooted for him to overcome all that, it just was something that um, became, you know, a, a, a part of who I was. And I was lucky enough to get into um, a business where I could tell stories um, about guys like Richie Allen. When I made the Hank Aaron film, I invited Richie Allen to the screening and he walked out at some point and I was so upset. This is my hero and now my friend. Um, and when I asked him later what happened, he said, I couldn't watch it anymore. It was too emotional for me. He said, you were telling my story at the same time you were telling the Hank Aaron story. We all went through the same thing. So it's just, you know, a part of the the era when I grew up and, and what I was, um, um, you know, what I was aware of and what I was sensitive to and, um, you know, grateful to be able to at least, you know, raise a dialogue and uh, ex- expose some of those issues. So I'd be a bad millennial if I didn't at least get one question in about the shows you did for Nickelodeon. Uh, so all that had the, so all that had the TLC opening and it had the R&B and hip hop musical guest. Keenan Kell, of course, had the Coolio theme song. How did you integrate hip-hop into these shows and kind of urban culture in a way that was not really being done in the 90s? I'm going to give Brian Robbins, my partner, a lot of credit for that. Um, he took the lead on that. Um, that was a passion for him. I, you know, it's funny. Um, I grew up with the Philly sound, which millennials probably have no idea about. But um, there were two guys named Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff who... Uh, had, had, had ultimately had the first black-owned and run major label. Clive Davis uh, created Philadelphia International Records, so it was run by Gamble and Huff. And this was, I called it soul music, call it R&B, um, but, but Brian's a little younger than me, and when he grew up in Brooklyn and then moved to L.A., you know, it was more hip-hop. And, uh, and so he was really tuned into that and really made that a priority. And we, and we saw and we were encouraged by Nickelodeon to do that because, as you said, nobody else was really doing that, to be able to bring uh, a top-flight musician or, or group to our stage and have a live performance every week as part of the show. was a, It was a real attraction and, uh, and set the show apart quite a bit along with the comedy. So my last question for you is kind of a fun one. If you could pick any actor to play any athlete or sports figure for your next film, who would you mm. pick and who would they play? I hope our next film is an adaptation of the book, The Art of Fielding. The Art of Fielding uh, was my favorite book about five years ago. Um, I read it. I wanted to make it. I went after it. The rights were already gobbled up by Scott Rudin. He spent five years trying to make a series out of it. Um, Such an epic, sprawling novel. Um, I understand why you'd want to do it um, for, for television where you have, you know, you have more real estate. Um, but um, it came back to the author, Chad Harbaugh. He said, I want, to, I want to focus on doing a feature film. We were lucky enough to get the rights. Hired a great writer named Tripper Clancy to write it. Uh, have a spectacular director named Craig Johnson who did Skeleton Twins attached to direct it. And we hope to be shooting this, this film by the end of the year. Um, the twist in answering your question is that the real lead of the 
of the movie um, isn't an athlete. Um, at its core, the art of fielding is about a relationship between a, a young shortstop and a, and a veteran catcher at this little little college in the Midwest. But ultimately, the headmaster of the school becomes the protagonist and takes a crazy twist that you never see coming. Um, and so to answer your question, we'd love to have George Clooney play the headmaster. That's the dream. Yeah, it's a, he's, he's a dream actor for almost any role. Yeah, he'd be great. And I recommend the book. Uh, it's a great read. You don't have to be a sports fan to enjoy it. All right. Well, that's the last question I have. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining the show. Appreciate it. Mike Tolan's new 30 for 30 titled Morningside 5 aired on ESPN on August 8th. As promised, here's a sneak peek of the narrative special episode, which will go live September 29th. Enjoy! Baseball was probably at its highest level from 1947 to 1957. Five World Series in a row for Casey Stengel and his American League whiz bang. The Brooklyn Dodgers have won their first World Series in 55 years. The jubilant Giants stood alone, baseball champions of the world. I think that 10-year stretch in the New York metropolitan area will never again be duplicated. I did see items in the paper every once in a while that they were considering moving to Minneapolis. I really didn't think it would ever happen. And then my father sent me this letter. At a meeting of our board today, they voted uh, permission for us to transfer the New York Giants franchise to San Francisco. Does that mean you will definitely do it? That's right. Uh, I said, I'm never going to see these guys play again. This is crazy. Why, why would they leave? And the New York Giants deserted the polo grounds and went west to San Francisco. I don't think I was facing the negative things that were going on as seriously as I should have. I knew that the Giants were not making a profit. I knew that the attendance was not very good. I knew the neighborhood was horrible, but I didn't put all that together. I think the New York Giants is something that, uh, that goes right along with the, the words New York City, and I hope that they figure out somehow or another to keep them right here. I really felt like it was an affront to me as a fan that I was not going to be able to see them play anymore. It bothered me that I couldn't do something to stop it from happening. I was too far away. Why did one of Major League Baseball's most historic teams suddenly move across the country? Next time on The Narrative, the story of the New York baseball giants.